This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the New Orleans City Council is considering two new measures that would provide greater oversight of the recently reapproved use of surveillance technology. The dead zone where the Mississippi River dumps into the Gulf of Mexico is smaller in size than last year, but not due to much needed efforts made upstream, according to scientists. A lawyer for John F. Kennedy's graduating class of 2019 is asking the judge to find OPSB and the charter group that ran the school liable for negligence and educational malpractice. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, Josh. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Good morning, Marta. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Morning. All right, Nick. Last month, New Orleans City Council voted to reverse a previous ban on police use of facial recognition technology. This week, however, they're considering an ordinance that will create some additional oversight and transparency around how the police can utilize that that technology and another that would require criminal justice agencies to hand over raw data to the council on a monthly basis. So what's up with these ordinances? What would they do and why do some council members think they're necessary right now? So like you said, last week, or sorry, two weeks ago, the council rolled back the previous ban on facial recognition software. Um, It was banned in, in 2020. Um, And then there was a a push by the Cantrell administration and and OPD leadership to uh, bring it back and and allow it in certain instances. So when that ordinance was passed two weeks ago, again, giving NOPD um, the ability to use this software, there was also an amendment proposed um, by by council members Morell, Harris, and Moreno that would require NOPD to to get approval from a judge or a magistrate commissioner to use this. So like, like you would go to a judge to get a warrant um, Mm. basically, but that amendment was, was shut down. The amendment also had, had a provision that basically explicitly prohibits NOPD from using uh, the technology to, to investigate uh, abortions um, or consensual same sex uh, acts. So those two things, and then also a reporting requirement around the, Kind of frequency of use and and effectiveness of the um, technology are sort of the three things that this amendment tried to get at. The amendment failed um, to pass, and so now it's being brought up again as a kind of a separate ordinance, and that, that's what we're looking at this week, um, in addition to this other raw data ordinance. Yeah, and uh, I, I would say this, uh, the, the first one, the, the one that, that deals with the, uh, you know, the affidavits and the, and the, the uh, periodic reporting requirements on the effectiveness of the program. That was sponsored by the three council members um, on the current council, or that is being sponsored by the three council members on the current council who have uh, sort of shown the most uh, skepticism about uh, the need for and usefulness of these surveillance technologies. That's Moreno, Harris, and Morell. I believe Moreno was absent from the la- last council meeting, and, and you, you sort of wrote about how that likely affected uh, the amendment not passing. 
Yeah, that's right. It was a 3-3 vote on the amendment, which which meant it failed. Uh, Councilman Joe Geruso also voted in favor of it. So I think it looks like if, if kind of things fall the way they did. Looks like they have four votes. Yeah, yeah I, it, it's, it appears that way. Now, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen at the meeting and, and what gets brought up, um, but it, it seems like they should have enough votes to to pass the this new ordinance. So, so I, I was also out of town um, for that meeting, and I know that you were covering the trial at, at the time at the Jason Williams trial at the time. Did you have a chance to look back at the tape from that meeting and see what the specific objections were to this amendment? Yeah, I went back this morning actually and watched the conversation around it, which was actually pretty limited. Are you talking about G. Russo's amendment or the yeah the yeah. Helena. No, well, Jeruso had had a separate amendment that that uh, sort of expanded the number. The, the yeah, that number. one went through, and that then, one went through, right? Um, Leslie and Helena's amendment, like people were pretty upset about that. Like they were very very cautious about it. Yeah, I mean, I actually the at least the, the discussion I saw on the, on the amendment, there were some concerns for, that particularly I, I believe the language around. The, the abortion portion like somehow con- con- contradicted uh the the crimes listed in the order yeah i can I, I can i can sort of get into that so yeah, explain that i'm really confused okay so the bill uh so the bill that passed that that rolled back the ban on facial recognition um allowed nopd to request the use of facial recognition analysis and, and, you know, just as an explanation, the way the NOPD does this, NOPD does this, at least right now, um, is they don't have their own uh, facial recognition software. They, they would request it from other agencies, most particularly the what is known as the Fusion Center in Baton Rouge, which is the Louisiana Fusion and Exchange Center, which is a, a, a criminal, uh, criminal intelligence sharing partnership between the state police and several federal agencies. Anyway, so as the bill was written, it excluded, quote, crimes of violence, which is a, a legal term in Louisiana state law. It allowed facial recognition for the investigation of crimes of violence. Then it had a list of crimes of violence that it could, that could apply. So if you go into Louisiana state law, crimes of violence, um, as defined, includes criminal abortion. And I'm not going to I'm not going to go into exactly what that means. Just just suffice to say that um, criminal abortion, as written in the law, um, was originally something se- a separate crime than the the crime of abortion that is now illegal under the under the um, trigger law. So the list of crimes that were in the in the ordinance that was passed did not include criminal abortion, but there was some concern from council members that because it used it used the term crimes of violence that that could be interpreted uh, interpreted to mean that the list that was in the ordinance was not an exhaustive list and police could use this to investigate any so-called crime of violence, which, you know, could include criminal abortion. Um, so the other concern, I believe, was that uh, the legislature could redefine homicide in state law, which is, of course, a crime of violence, to include abortions. And that would certainly open it up because homicide was included in the list in the New Orleans law. So this amendment, what it does is it explicitly says that abortion is not part of this list, uh, is, is, is not to be investigated using facial recognition. And it also includes 
consensual relations between uh, consensual sexual relations between adults, including any law that purports to make same-sex sexual contact illegal. Now, the background on that is that the state of Louisiana is one of a number of states in, in the country that had has an anti-sodomy law. Um, sodomy laws were ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in 2003. Uh, however, so so it's an unenforceable law. Uh, however, as is the case in several other states that have sodomy laws, it remains on the books in Louisiana. Even though if you go read it um, on the state uh, legislature's website, it says at the top of it, you know, this is an unconstitutional law. But uh, I think the the fear from members of council, you know, and notably this uh, this today's the, the ordinance that's going up before the council today. Um, is two of two of its authors are attorneys. The concern is that in in the wake of the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, that the Supreme Court will revisit some of its other landmark decisions, including possibly its striking down of sodomy laws from two thousand three. So mm. I think the council is trying to get ahead of that should that ever happen. Well, and the other concern here was domestic violence, right? Like that's that's what J.P. Morrell talked about. That's what Helena Marino brought up in her comments. Was that this was Charles? Charles gave a very broad view, but like the the smaller slice was that this was potentially giving uh, officers like more, you know, potential insight into domestic violence situations. Which, if you know, it was a personal thing, they might have privilege to be viewing those things, which we know have been, has been a problem in the past. Okay. And tell us what Mayor Cantrell is saying about this ordinance, these ordinances. I'm not sure what the administration is thinking about the, the facial recognition ordinance that we've been discussing. Um, I requested a, a comment from them and they, they didn't respond. I mean, I think, I think that there is likely going to be some pushback from NOPD on the needing to go through a judge or a magistrate that's just one more step that i think they they would prefer not to have to take and reports i would think i wouldn't think they'd be happy about that either yeah yeah i mean and so the the other ordinance that that's being discussed is this reporting of raw data uh to the new orleans city council and this applies uh both the nopd and a little more broadly to nopd they nopd would have to uh report um, very some specific things to the council, and then also uh, produce these public uh, data reports um, every month. But it also would apply to some degree to to other criminal justice agencies, the DA's office, the sheriff's office, um, to would and, and to turn over all this raw data to the council. And uh, we obtained an email from from one of Cantrell's top officials, Tanisha Stevens, who's the criminal justice commissioner. And she was basically laying out the concerns um, with this ordinance. One, that it would be overly burdensome to these agencies to have to produce these reports uh, every month. And, you know, it's true that that basically all of these agencies have a serious staffing issue. Um, and we've seen that with the sheriff's office. We've certainly we've seen it with NOPD. So that's one concern. She also expressed concerns about how well the data would be protected. And then also, which I, you know, was one of the more interesting things in the email, she she said she was she was concerned it would create multiple sources of truth, um, and that it would undermine public confidence. 
Yeah, and, I, I'd like to know exactly what that means because it's it sounds a lot like this information in the hands of the council would be used in a way that wouldn't be framed the way the administration wants it to be framed. Um, they didn't respond to your request for comment, so I don't know if that's what they meant, but it certainly sounds that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the way I read it is, you know, there's obviously been this kind of back and forth and, and you know, conflict between the council and the administration. And yeah, I mean, the, the way I read that certainly is you know, we don't want you taking this data and, and putting out something something different from what we're saying. Hmm. Like the, yeah, it, it was an interesting way of framing it. Right. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, I do see, I do, I, I you know, I think you have to, you have to give her the cheat sheet. Uh, she does have a point about, the, about the, the, the privacy part of it. Um, I mean, if, if what she's saying is true, um, that the raw data, like if they're getting raw data, that is, that is, that is not, you know, going through a, a legal intermediary for, for redaction or anything that it could contain, you know, certain private and personal identify, personally identifying information. It, it's true that the ordinance does not call for specific measures to uh, maintain the privacy of that information, um, you know, either from a, from a sort of data security side or from a what can the council say out loud about what they're reading kind of side. So mm. I do see, I, 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 you know, I do see that there are potentially legitimate concerns there depending on what is actually contained in the raw data. Yeah, the, the ordinance uses a, appropriate privacy protections kind of as, as the guidelines for, for how the data should be turned over. That but, sounds extremely vague to me. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It's vague. Uh, I, I mean, that's they, they definitely have a point there. Um, the council, the council could have, you know, perhaps could have written uh, something a little more specific in there. And 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 you know, who knows? It's uh, Thursday today. We're recording this a day before it's gonna it's gonna publish. And uh, by tomorrow, there'll either have been a vote on this, or they'll have decided to defer it. And, you know, perhaps that'll that'll come up and there will be some amendments offered um, either today or at a future council meeting. We'll find out more as the week progresses. Thanks, Nick. Let's go on. And an update to this story. The New Orleans City Council approved both ordinances today. However, the language requiring police to submit sworn affidavits was stripped out. But the remainder of the ordinances were passed as described in the story. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, environmental reporter Josh Rosenberg, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Okay, Josh. NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, announced Wednesday the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico this year is smaller than expected. However, it's still larger than the targeted goal. 
The effects of the low oxygen zone caused mainly by agricultural runoff can be devastating for marine habitats and the fishing communities that depend on that ecosystem to be healthy. So explain what the dead zone is. Yeah, so it's it's a phenomenon that happens seasonally. There's all this uh, nutrient runoff that collects in in the Mississippi River Basin. For those who don't know, it's a huge basin. It, it I think it uh, expands to like 30 plus states, um, an enormous basin, and and you've got all these farms and you know agricultural activities happening there. And the the nitrogen and and phosphorus that are used in in, in those operations uh, for fertilizers and etc. You know, a lot of that eventually finds its way um, into the Mississippi River, uh, also into the Atchafalaya uh, River. And when this nutrient um, a stream, if you will, uh, makes it into the Gulf. It, it creates these uh, these algal blooms, they're called. And then when those perish, the decomposition process uh, is, is such that all these bacteria end up eating away at those algae. And by virtue of doing that, they uh, deplete the oxygen level at these sub subwater, uh, I'm sorry, subsurface uh, uh, water levels. And, and, and so what, what you get is these areas of very little oxygen, sometimes no oxygen. And, you know, that's that's a long way of saying that essentially a lot of marine life just simply can't survive in that kind of environment. So for the mobile creatures, they they move away from this low oxygen zone. And, and for those that are not as mobile, a lot, a lot of times they end up perishing. And, mm. and that, of course, has adverse impacts on the ecosystem in general. So give us some numbers here. What is the size this year? What was it last year and why? Yeah, so this year it, it clocked in at um, a little under 3,300 square miles. Um, last year it was uh, over 6,000 square miles. And, and just for the sake of comparison, the state of Connecticut, for instance, is a little under 5,000 square miles. Mm. You know, so that's definitely a, you know, pretty substantial decrease from, from last year's figure. According to one of the, the lead scientists, Nancy Rabelais, who studies this, she's down uh, at LSU, the decrease can be attributed largely to um, like a a tempered lower flow of the Mississippi River itself. So in other words, it wasn't really about, you know, it's 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 not as if these farmers up in the basin in, in states, whatever, like Iowa or Indiana or wherever in the basin, it's 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 not as if they've made this, you know, tremendous difference in decreasing the amount of this nutrient runoff and this nutrient pollution. It's it's just simply that the river wasn't flowing as strongly this year because of of drought conditions she she was saying at, at different parts of the year so that's kind of the the primary driver uh this time fascinating i know like minnesota where i'm from had like a a hundred year drought last year and they're like already starting another one right now uh, yeah the drought is the drought seems to be the biggest contributor according according to the the people josh talked to for this story um and that's in spite of a in spite of a 25 year 
effort by a federal task force that was put together specifically to uh, you know, study and combat this dead zone. And now that's called the, the, uh, the hypoxia task force. That's right. uh, and so one of the people Josh talked to for the story uh, basically said, you know, it, at best you can say over the years that since the formation of the hypoxia task force is that we have seen a, a sort of a plateauing of the size of the, of the dead zone over time, rather than a real reduction and a big problem there seems to be that they that the federal government, specifically the EPA, which which is generally the regulatory body for uh, drainage runoff, um, at least when it comes to industry, um, is is sort of hampered in its abilities to enforce agricultural runoff because the Clean Water Act, which is which is the the act that that enables them to do this regulatory work. It contains an exemption for runoff that results uh, that results from quote normal farming activities. Mm-hmm. So that that's obviously what we're talking about here are normal farming activities. Um, so so that leaves them in a position, the hypoxia task force, where they need to either deal with uh, you know encourage state reg- state level environmental regulators to take greater action. Um, you know, and depending on the laws of each state, that could be something they can or can't do, or, uh, or you know, sort of mass voluntary adoption of, of new farming and drainage methods by the farmers, um, okay. you know, either of which is, is more difficult than direct federal action. Well, let me ask this, and let me just preface this by saying, I suppose whether, you know, it's not, it's not due to regulation or cooperation or any kind of great effort on the part of the agricultural industry that the Zed Zone is smaller this year. We just happened to do it because of drought. However, I would wonder if, here's the presumption that maybe is wrong, the agricultural activity was, I would guess, not dampened necessarily. They continued to farm and produce and use as much of the toxic material that creates this dead zone as they always do. It's just that there wasn't enough water to transport it down into the Gulf. So my, my further assumption would be that next year, if there is normal or above average water flow, we're just going to get this extra more toxicity coming down. It's going to be sitting there waiting to be transported. It just didn't make it. Is that Caroline? I'm actually curious, like, do we think it's a groundwater issue up north or do we think it will? Right. Does it sit there and wait to be transported? What happens? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Does it just dissipate some other way if it doesn't get transported? Did they talk about like what could happen if there is a greater rain up north uh, in future years? It's a great question. I, I, I don't know if like there's this residual, um, you know, reservoir, let's say, of these nutrients, nitrogen nutrients, let's say, that that would be waiting as leftovers from this year and, you know, next year if, if like um, even more was, was alluding to, right, if, if the, the these aren't uh, drought conditions affecting it and, and the re- regular, you know, let's say, normal water flow, then those exact specific nutrients would make it into the the flow, so to speak, of, of the river, make it down. That's a good question. I don't know if, if they'd be left over in, in the in the interim, let's say, or if they would dissipate, as you were saying, in the meantime, 
to to kind of just put a different lens on it just just for a moment one one of the main drivers they look at is so-called nitrogen loading that that happens up in the basin and and as i understand it that that just means the amount of nitrogen that they're using in in any given year for for these uh nutrients and that's remained fairly stable o- over the past uh number of decades you you see some variation but it's it's remained largely stable that's not really come down at all so my takeaway from that is if they're not lowering the amount of this nitrogen loading on the front end then next year if the water levels are closer to to what we've experienced before then that would have a you know then we'd be right back essentially to where we were in in terms of the size of the dead zone uh with or without you know this the separate issue of what happens to these nutrients that may not have made it into the, yeah. the Gulf this year that were used yeah. in, in the basin. Okay. Right. And that size is several times above what the, the task force's goal is, right? What, what, what is the, what is yeah. the goal size for the, for the dead zone? The goal is uh, 1,930 square miles by, so by even, 2035. Yeah. So even in a low year, we're still well above that goal. Are, is there any good news about, what may happen in the future and, and efforts being made to target or to reach these targets? That's, that's a great question. My, my takeaway from the reporting I've done on this is that there's a lot of inertia in the system that, you know, farmers, um, states are set in their ways in, in, in a lot of respects. And it would take a whole lot of investment to really bring these levels down to to the target goal. There is a study showing that um, it would take $2.7 billion annually for for the U.S. to invest to reach this um, target goal of of under 2,000 square miles. This task force that Charles was was, uh, talking about earlier was was, um, scheduled to receive uh, funding from the uh, Biden administration's uh, infrastructure legislation, but that would total only sixty million dollars over five years. Um, so, I mean, if 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 you take these researchers' uh, conclusions, I mean, that's that's quite you know, it's quite a yawning gap to to put it generously. Right. You know, right. and it's all it, it's and it's all you know again. On the federal side, at least, and and on most of the state side, this not only it's 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 all carrot, no stick, and the carrot is, and as you just mentioned, isn't even a very big carrot. Yeah, it's it's more of a baby carrot um, yeah. than anything. Uh, <laughs> which they grow up there. Which they grow. So you get you get some ranch dressing though. You know that uh, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, anything's possible. I encourage everyone to read the story because you you've got some great insight into how it impacts the fishing industry. You talk to a couple of fishermen who talks about having to go further and further out into the Gulf, which is dangerous. And it's a great and story. Expensive. Yeah. And expensive. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you. Marta, the legal team for the graduating class of 2019 at John F. Kennedy High School, when more than half the graduating seniors were found ineligible for their diplomas, is asking a judge for a partial judgment on behalf of the class. Remind us again what happened to the class of 2019 at JFK High School. 
Yeah, so this started out actually with a tip from a, a administrator who had left the school about alleged grade changing. And that had only been alleged to happen to 10-ish students. And what happened from there is that obviously with that allegation launched a uh, district investigation, a charter investigation, and actually a Department of Education investigation. And from those investigations, we found out that there was a, a lot more going on at that school. And like you said, more than half of those students in the graduating class were ineligible to graduate, not by any fault of their own, but they literally either hadn't taken the proper courses, didn't have the opportunity to take them, or when they did try to make them up, were not being properly supervised. So they couldn't count towards their um, diploma eligibility. Right. So what's the, um, what is the attorney asking for right now of the judge? She is asking for a, a partial summary judgment and partial meaning that she has separately filed both against the Orleans Parish School Board for failing to supervise the charter group properly, and then separately against the charter group, uh, New Beginnings Schools Foundation, which no longer, well, it still exists, but no longer is running schools um, for the for the same thing. So she she is hoping that if she can prove, and she's filed for emotional distress, which I, from talking to her and from talking to students is apparent, right? Like, Students had to go back to school in the summer. They had to go. Some kids had to return for another year. Seems apparent. So she she thinks if she can get either of those nailed down, that um, that will help her in further pursuing her class action suit. I mean, just to give you an example, her the lead plaintiff, the first plaintiff who signed on to this lawsuit, I guess it was actually her mother, but the lead plaintiff had in her third year of high school, she was going to school during the day and taking her junior year classes. And then every night she was going home and taking online courses that were, she was placed in by the school because she wanted to finish a year early for, for and, and, and start college. At the end of the year, after graduation, this student finds out that all of these online courses that she had spent an entire year taking, you know, basically working 12-hour days between between going to school in person and then taking classes online after school, all of them were invalid. Um, and she she had, if I remember correctly, had to redo her entire senior year. Yeah, basically. And her mom talked about her. She said Taylor would stay up, you know, until midnight every night doing these courses. Like, And, and then she had to go back for another year. Oh, right. Oh, tell me about the class action designation. Why is that important? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the big question here, and especially in light of uh, recent issues, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the big question here is whether or not students um, are getting the courses they need and have the opportunity to access those courses. So the class action that they have filed for is for any student who was in that school during that year. And that can be a, a freshman, it can be a senior, you know, but the main issue is whether or not these kids are getting the right courses. We have yet to see if it's been certified as a class action. Right, which leads us to talk about another school recently had a similar problem. We just discussed it a week ago or two weeks ago. Exactly. So Einstein uh, Charter High School had the basically exact same problem for what, what I can tell, which is that no one was keeping track of what these kids were taking uh, for their high school diplomas taking and if they weren't meeting requirements they weren't finding out until later like half that class was not eligible to graduate and they didn't know that until after the ceremony it calls into question all the you know everything they put into place after kennedy and that was not happening 
Yeah, I mean, after Kennedy, you know, basically as a direct, direct result of Kennedy, uh, the, the NOLA Public Schools District created all these new processes. I believe in, you get created a new administrative level position and a new office to, you know, do that with, with the explicit mission of, of tracking students and making sure that they're graduating on time with all the requirements that, that we need. And just for some of you Facebook commenter, commenters out there, we're not talking about kids who are failing classes here. We're, I mean, let's just get that out of our mind. We're talking about kids who are who believe that they're taking the right classes, in most cases are passing these classes, but there is a record keeping problem where the school is either not offering the correct classes or it's not submitting the yeah, it's not submitting transcripts in full through processes required by the Department of Education. And so, you know, in in, in both of these cases, it appears to be it, it appears to be not a failing of students or their parents, but of the, the administrators at these schools. And so in order to in order to stop that from happening again, NOLA Public Schools District did all this stuff. And and then three years later, um, just three years later, we find we, we find out that not only did something very similar happen again, where half the class was found ineligible to graduate. Now, in fairness, they were able to clear most of them for diplomas in the case of Einstein in about a month, all but one of them were. So apparently not quite as serious as JFK. But the students didn't, didn't find out about it until after graduation. And, and just as alarmingly, neither did the NOLA Public Schools District. And the NOLA Public Schools District didn't find out about it through their own work, through this, these new processes they created, they found out about it because an administrator at the school had to go tell them. So, you know, that's certainly, that's, you know, certainly is a little concerning when it comes to, you know, they put, they put all of this in place and, and what has come of it. I mean, I think it is highly concerning that a board member had to report this to the district, right? Like that is tragically. Yeah, Einstein, an Einstein board member. Yeah. Exactly. And and we actually don't know like what his impetus was to do that. It just was that he had, quote, concerns about the process. So yes, who knows what else was happening? But we all went to high school. Never did I question the courses I was taking that I wouldn't be eligible to graduate. Like apparently that's a security not every kid has. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But apparently apparently the district was not filling the positions that it created for this purpose, correct? No, 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 you're, you're exactly right. They told us, um, we asked, we, we said you appointed this, um, you put up this new position after Kennedy and they told us, um, oh, well, that position was, you know, being held halftime by another person who was doing another job. So. And didn't they blame COVID a little bit too? They blamed COVID and Ida, which is fine. Like right. schools were out and it was complicated. However, you know, this protective measure was put in place and the fact that you didn't have an employee to do it, I think is more telling of the fact that we did have a pandemic and a hurricane. Very complicated, but you know, that person, there was no person in that position. Right. I mean, yeah, those things don't necessarily keep them from hiring somebody. Did they have a budget issue or something? Is that what the problem was? Um, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and go on the record that um, no school has had a budget issue in the last year because everyone's had pandemic relief funding. So mm. budget <laughs> issues upcoming? Yes, absolutely. But for the past year, there was plenty of funding. At OPSB, there's a newly appointed board member. There's an interesting story about him. Tell us about that. So, yes, uh, Donaldo Batiste was the sole applicant for the district board position, which was vacated a couple of weeks ago by J.C. Romero. Um, he 
is largely from a traditional schooling background. So I think he is going to be an interesting part of this board that is, um, I would say, largely, you know, kind of pro-reform based. Pro-reform, in other words, meaning uh, a, a board that, that, you know, has largely been elected and is very in favor of the current model uh, for New Orleans, which is a charter-based sort of each school is granted a certain level of autonomy sort of model. But, you know, it was interesting, first of all, because the district has been taking some measures, some some baby steps over the past couple of years, and, and in fact, some larger steps to to centralize uh, central office operations and, and uh, have more regulations over charter schools. And because when uh, when he was, this board member was being interviewed prior to his appointment, he, he had some pointed comments about that, um, you know, about charter schools not getting enough central office support and oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, and he specifically brought up uh, the Einstein situation, right? Yeah, he did. I mean, he very pointedly said that charters apparently need more oversights citing Kennedy and Einstein, specifically Einstein, and that from his traditional school background, he thought there should be more support for struggling schools. That's kind of the angle he's coming from. Right, because the model has been, I, I mean, and this is this has changed a little bit too, especially during COVID, but the model in the past has been, um, you know, support, uh, support for struggling schools. It has been there, but it's been somewhat limited and the solution and, and and the solution was more you know what critics would sort of call like like a regulated market based solution where if a school isn't performing up to snuff um the solution was to to close it rather than to offer central office support to get it into a place where where they want it to be and like that's all well and fine in theory but you have kids in that school for 5 years before you close it so mm. like, you know, that's the parental concern on that side. Well, it's interesting timing for this appointment. So we'll see what happens with him being in the seat. Yeah, I think he sounds like he's going to be a straight shooter. So I think it will make the board a little more interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when is the District 4 special election going to happen, Marta? In Mar- in the spring, I believe in March. Okay, so qualifying, so qualifying just happened for the other vacant seat, which is District 1. But qualifying would still be coming up for the district four seat. Did they ask him at all whether he was intending to to run for a They actually didn't ask him if he was going to run, which I was surprised about um, because they asked everyone else that in the district one seat position earlier this year and also asked where all their kids or grandkids attended, even though some of the board members won't stay where their own children attend. Let's just put that on the record. (laughs) So I'm not sure if he's going to run for that seat, Um, but I do know from board president Olin Parker that they were, they couldn't get him into this election. They couldn't get this seat into this fall's election. They didn't have enough time. Okay. Well, thanks, Marta. Thank you. All right, y'all have a good week. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first non-profit, non-partisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Crastle, Joshua Rosenberg, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.